please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's Holy Word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke 1, 26 through 40. Please read with me the verses in bold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is a sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I bring you uh, greetings from Pastor Daniel, kind of, sort of. He is homesick. Uh, but uh, like Pastor Daniel la uh, explained last week, uh, this is Advent. And uh, in our Advent preaching this year, we've returned to the uh, opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke and we are spending these weeks reading the origin story of the Messiah, uh, the Nativity. And this is the second sermon in a sermon that is going to be a series of prequels, um, exploring the stories of the people that Luke tells us played critical roles in the events through which God became flesh and came to earth. And this morning... We're looking at Mary. Now, anytime you go to see a sequel or a prequel, for that matter, you can't help but compare it to the first film, right? Uh, you, you, you can't help but in your mind put the two films side by side and, uh, and compare them. You've almost been invited to do so, right? They gave it the same name, and so now you're thinking of the previous movie. 
uh, simply because they made another one. It's almost like one of those activities in the kid's coloring book, right? It's two pictures and they say, do you notice the difference? Can you pick out what's different and what's similar in these two pictures? Except in the case of a sequel or a prequel, a second movie in a series, uh, you can't help but also feel like you need to decide which one is better. Think through uh, which one you like more. And sometimes it's hard to, hard to tell. It's been a long time since you watched the first movie. Or sometimes it's obvious. There have been some really terrible and forgettable prequels. I'm thinking of movies like Dumb and Dumber-er. <laughs> starring neither of the original stars, Jim Carrey or Jeff Daniels. I also found out this week that there was a movie that I didn't know existed called Butch and Sundance, The Early Days, starring neither Paul Newman or Robert Redford. Low-budget excuses for a money grab, starring nobodies that hardly compare to the originals. In the opening chapter of Luke, there are two stories set side by side. They're inviting our comparison. The origin story of John the Baptist and the origin story of Jesus. Two births foretold, two impossible pregnancies, two hems of praise to God, two unlikely deliveries. Similarities are striking and they're intentional. We're supposed to look at them and compare these two stories. And Luke is inviting us to compare and contrast the two, because he wants us to think about which one is greater. And I would argue, in fact, that Luke wants us to see what is different about the story of Gabriel's visit to Mary compared to his visit to Elizabeth and Zechariah uh, that Daniel preached on last week. And he wants us to ask ourselves not just which story do we like better, but who is greater, John or Jesus? And so this morning, we're going to look at Mary, and uh, we're going to compare her story that we read this morning to the story we heard last week about Gabriel's visit to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, because Luke has put her story in the text to tell us something about the greatness of Jesus. And so this morning, a, a sermon in three parts, Mary, highly favored, Mary, greatly troubled, and Mary, according to your word. Part one, Mary, highly favored. Gabriel's visit to Mary starts, uh, it starts off looking, to be honest, like a low-budget sequel to his visit to Zechariah. Zechariah was an accomplished somebody. He was a who's who's, and, uh, a lifetime priest serving in a once-in-a-lifetime role, uh, burning incense in the temple. He was a real star. And you might even argue somebody who deserved a visit from an angel. Mary is a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. She's a nobody. She's an unmarried female in a patriarchal society. She's in a nothing town. People said, you can read in John, uh, how people used to say, nothing good ever comes out of Nazareth. 
and she's in the middle of nowhere. Galilee is in itself a nondescript corner in the middle of Israel, and Israel's a nondescript corner in the middle of a vast Roman Empire. And so we find this second visit of the angel in uh, a nowhere place to a no one in the middle of nowhere. But this is all really intentional because God is setting the stage for us to understand what he's doing by choosing Mary for the ultimate honor that any human had ever received, to be the mother of Jesus, the son of God. And this is what Gabriel is leading to. It's what he's talking about when he uses these words. He says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And the, the word that gets translated twice there as favor is related to is very similar as the same word, uh, has the same root word in Greek that we translate grace, which means to be treated with undeserved kindness. Mary has found favor. She's found grace from God. Martin Luther paraphrased Gabriel's words like this. He says, oh, Mary, you are blessed. You have a gracious God. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has shown such grace. The very fact that Mary is a nobody in a nowhere place is supposed to accentuate for us, it's supposed to accentuate for us that uh, it's not something particularly special about Mary that made her worthy uh, to be the character in this event. She's not presented anywhere in the Bible as sinless or uniquely righteous, uh, set apart in that way. Uh, what, make Mary, what makes Mary special is that God chose her. This is important. It's, in, it's important theologically for us to understand that Gabriel does not show up and worship Mary. He hasn't come to venerate her. Um, he does... What, what he does not say, uh, what, what, what he does not say is that she is full of grace. It says that God has favored her and that she is being given unbelievable grace from God. Mary is not in this, uh, in, the, in the structure of the sentence, she is a passive recipient. She's not the source of the grace that's being talked about. She's receiving this unmerited gift from God. And it's also important for us to understand this personally as we think about how this impacts us because we are in the same boat as Mary. She's not, we're not being uh, presented with a character who is uh, otherworldly in a, in a way that is not familiar to us. God's grace, as we're being told, is not only for those who are uniquely deserving and set apart from everyone else in history by their beauty and their purity and their love. God's grace is for nobodies in nowhere places with nothing to give in return. Like you and me. I called you out. <laughs> Mary is unique in human history. We cannot deny it. I love the fact that uh, that when we think about the incarnation, we're celebrating at Christmas the feast of the incarnation, the Christ mass, uh, the celebration of 
trying to wrestle with the idea that God became man in the person of Jesus. And I love that when God took on humanity in Jesus, he didn't need help from any man. But he couldn't do it without a woman. But the reason Mary is so helpful for our faith is not because she has grace within herself that she can give us or somehow uh, uh, provide for us, as some would suggest, but it's because she's so clearly an example of the fact that this is how God works in the world. He shows unmerited favor to those who don't deserve it, to sinners like you and me. I called you out. Mary, highly favored. Part two, Mary, greatly troubled. When, Ga- uh, when Gabriel appears to foretell the birth of John the Baptist, uh, Pastor Daniel preached on it last week, Zechariah, his father, asks a question that gets him in big trouble. Zach- Gabriel appears to Zechariah, foretells John's coming, and Zechariah says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. When Gabriel appears to foretell the birth of Jesus to Mary, she also asks a question, but she doesn't get in trouble. In fact, she gets encouraged. Mary asks this question, how will this be since I am a virgin? What's the difference? Well, as we read, we realize that Zechariah is responding in uh, disbelief. He's filled with disbelief, and he says, prove it. My wife is going to get pregnant. Prove it. We're, we're too old. Show me a sign. And he ends up with the sign that he requested, right, which is being unable to speak until his son is born. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Mary, on the other hand, clearly seems to believe God. Uh, she, doesn't ask, she doesn't ask Gabriel to prove it. She doesn't say prove it. She asks him to explain it. Mary may be poor. She may be uneducated. She's a peasant. She's living in a country town, but she's no dummy. She knows how babies are made, and she understands what the angel is saying. Uh, she is saying that this is going to happen to her without a husband before she's had sexual intercourse. And she doesn't ask for a sign that this could be true. She just wants to understand how will that work? And it's a good question. And when Gabriel answers, he not only gives an explanation uh, that Mary asks for, but he also offers her a sign to encourage her faith. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who was called barren. I think sometimes people want to read this account in the scriptures as a myth rather than a historic event. A myth, I'll give you my working definition of a myth, uh, usually refers to a story that itself may be made up, but is designed to explain some phenomenon or communicate some important truth. So Greek religion, Greek mythology is filled with this sort of thing, filled with stories actually 
of lusty and immortal gods mating with humanity and producing superpowered offspring like Hercules, the demigod, right? Uh, maybe some other notable movie demigods with at least one sequel either in existence or forthcoming. Thor and Maui, I learned. Moana 2 is in production. But Luke is not writing mythology. We have already seen that he's a meticulous historian. He has actually, in, earlier in the chapter, dated Zechariah's temple encounter with Gabriel during King Herod's reign in Judah. And now he's so meticulous as to tell us that Gabriel's visit to Mary is during the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Uh, he is trying to communicate as clearly as he knows how that this happened in real time. You can look at the history books and pinpoint when Herod was king. And Gabriel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit shall come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And when we look at biblical language, we realize that this is not a veiled language designed to describe an illicit sexual encounter between a god and humanity like Greek mythology. It's actually the same kind of language that the Old Testament uses to describe the creative power of the Holy Spirit in creation. In Genesis, it says that the Holy Spirit was overshadowing the waters of the deep as God created in Genesis 1, 2. It's the same language that the Old Testament uses to describe the presence of God overshadowing the holy place in the tabernacle where God's people worshiped. The cloud of God's presence uh, overshadowed the tabernacle. It's the same language that the New Testament uses to describe the cloud of God's presence later in the Gospels when we hear about Jesus's transfiguration, when he's revealed by God's presence and God's voice to be God's son. Gabriel is describing something less like a sexual encounter and something more like the beginning of a new creation. When he says, uh, when he answers Mary's question, how will this be? Luke wants us to read this account as factual and biblical, historic in a moment and understand it in the language of the scriptures, a biblical account of one of God's most incredible miracles, a virgin birth. He intends us to understand it as what it sounds like, that Mary had a baby before she ever had sexual intercourse. Is it possible? Gabriel says, nothing is impossible with God. And as a sign that Mary didn't ask for, but maybe possibly needs to encourage her faith, he says that her relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. You can go check. Let's be clear. The virgin birth is not some extra little doodad that makes Jesus neat. It's not an additional kind of magic trick that's on his resume that makes him more attractive or more mysterious. Without the virgin birth, there is no Christ. And without Christ, there is no Christmas. 
No Christmas! Gasps everyone in every cheap knockoff Christmas sequel that's ever been made. <laughs> Listen. To say that Jesus wasn't born of a virgin is to say that Luke was writing fiction, that he was making things up. Or is to say that Mary was sexually unfaithful to her husband, her betrothed, or, or maybe you're saying both. Uh, but either way, uh, to deny the virgin birth is not only to deny the plain teaching of Scripture, but it's to deny the deity of Christ. It's his conception by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes him the Son of God. It's the fact that he was born of a woman, born of Mary, that makes him a human, a man. The virgin birth embodies the mystery of the incarnation, that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. Jesus, he says later, is the firstborn of a new creation because humanity on its own couldn't produce its own savior. Generations attempted to free themselves from sin by their own works and their own righteousness and their own religion. But humanity could not produce its own savior. God had to come. It had to, a, a Messiah, a Savior, had to come from God's creative intervention, God's creative initiative, uh, His own entering into history to interrupt the cycle of sin and death that humanity was caught in. Only someone who was fully human could represent humanity in front of God in His judgment. Only somebody who was fully divine could free humanity from sin and death. The virgin birth is critical to our confession, and theologians later on would meticulously and precisely add it to the early creeds of Christianity because they realized, though it was sometimes seemed like a minor note in the symphony of the Gospels, it was a major confession in the foundation of Christianity. Mary found favor in God's sight. Mary was deeply troubled as she should have been by the prospect of becoming pregnant out of wedlock. Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is part three. Mary, according to your word. Um, we could read that and it could come off really saintly, right? Hands folded, let it be to me according to your word. But consider what Mary is saying. As she submits her life to this plan that has been revealed to her by God, when she says, according to your word, Mary is a young Jewish teenager, possibly 12 or 13 years old. She has a life that is headed in a wonderful direction. She knows, she knows the scripture later on. She'll quote them in the song that she sings. So she seems to be a faithful uh, young Jewish woman. She's engaged to a wonderful guy named Joseph who possibly had modest but honorable aspirations as a carpenter, a hopeful future. She's likely spending this engagement time as so many young women do, right? Dreaming, planning a wedding, uh, dreaming about her new life as a young bride. And then Gabriel shows up and says that God's going to do something that likely will upend all of that. He says that she's found favor with God 
Um, but as he describes to her what that favor is, she's going to realize that uh, if, she, if she gets pregnant out of wedlock, she could be charged with a crime in Nazareth. And even if she's not treated like a criminal, she's going to be branded as a tramp. Joseph, if he has any self-respect, is probably going to break off their engagement. She's going to be a social outcast. She's going to have no way to feed herself and her new baby. She's going to be poor, and she's going to be alone. This is potentially the beginning of a life that she never expected. Certainly not the one that she had been planning for herself, not the one that she thought that God was laying out in front of her. And of course, we have the, hist- we have the privilege of history to look back and say, no, in fact, God was faithful. And indeed, all generations have looked back and called Mary blessed. But all she had to go on is what Gabriel is saying in this moment. And that's where we often find ourselves. I don't know if you find yourself uh, in this season or in this season of life uh, in a place that you never imagined that you would be. And if you do, if you feel like life has taken a hard left-hand turn or flipped you upside down, if uh, your decisions or someone else's feel like they've broadsided you like a truck, Christmas can be a time that rather than bringing peace, sometimes magnifies the disappointment of where you are compared to where you thought you would be. Um, Trying to hold it together while life is full of conflict and chaos and everyone around you is proclaiming peace on earth and goodwill toward men. What can you do when fear and loss, shame and disappointment follow you into Christmas? Do you have to just hide or fake it? Do you have to put on a smile and try to be merry and bright while inside uh, everything is falling apart? I want to suggest that we can see in how Mary responds as she says, let it be unto me, uh, how does she say it? According to your word. That we can find really, that she does three really important things in the midst of, of how God is radically reordering her life and her expectation. The first thing that she does is that she takes God at his word. She says, let it be to me according to your word. And that's no little thing. She joins a long line of believers and their stories that are told to us in scripture who God, uh, inter- whose lives God has interrupted and then says, trust me. Abraham, David, Joseph, Rahab, God radically interrupts their lives and then invites them to believe that he is good, invites them to believe his word and act on it. And Mary decides, I will believe your word and act on it, even when I don't understand why you have led me to this place. Is it hard to believe in this moment in life that God keeps his promises? Is it hard not to take justice and vengeance into your own hands? Is it hard to have integrity when temptation arises? Is it hard to be truthful when you feel exposed? Is it hard to believe in the place that you find yourself that 
God is for you and is working even these circumstances for your good. Is it hard to believe that? Harder to believe than that a virgin could give birth? Mary decides to take God at his word. Secondly, Mary responds to God by seeking community. She went to Elizabeth. That's the next thing that we read. She went to see the sign. God said, go see if you want. Uh, if, you, if you want, to see. She went to see that Elizabeth was actually pregnant. And by going to see Elizabeth, uh, she not only receives this encouragement that God is who he says he is, he's doing what he says that he'll do, but she also moves towards a woman who is a safe and wise person, a godly woman who can provide her with truth and comfort and godly counsel. My friends, today we are being taught by everything around us. And we are not mindful enough of who is teaching us and how is, who is leading us in our responses to life. When you're feeling vulnerable or when you're feeling hurt or when you're feeling fragile, who are you running to? Are you scrolling? Are you uh, crowdsourcing your response? I love that God put Mary and Elizabeth together at a time when both of them were facing serious challenges in their lives and potentially being misunderstood by those who were around them. My friends, we need godly community. We need to run to the church in times of uncertainty. Mary took God at his word. He, she, she, she looked for community and Mary chose to worship her savior. Remember, Mary didn't know what Joseph was going to do. She didn't know how her community was going to respond. But in the uncertainty of her future, she chose to praise God. In the Magnificat, this famous song that she sings later on in this chapter, we see the, the joyful faith of a young woman who has been set on a path that is totally unexpected. It's going to be intermingled with joy and with suffering. But in this moment of uncertainty, Mary chose to worship her God in the midst of what she realized was an unfinished story. This is not the end all. God's doing something. And actually, uh, that's what we're being called to do as well. Worship God in the midst of our unfinished story, expecting that he's a God that keeps his promises, looking at the person of Christ and realizing that he intervenes to save us, those who don't deserve his grace. So interesting, the very last place that you see Mary appear in the New Testament, it's Acts chapter 1 verse 14. She's in the upper room with Jesus's followers. And not surprisingly, we find her doing these very same three things. Believing God, surrounding herself with godly community, and worshiping her Lord. But by this time, she's a believer in Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She gave birth to him, saw him live, saw him die, witnessed his resurrection. Her son lives. And 
That's unbelievable. How can this be? May we also, this Advent, and then as the Lord makes the road rise up to meet us, fix our eyes on the one whom Mary undoubtedly could not take her eyes off of. John Bloom writes, and we'll close with this, he says, Mary's greatest blessing was not being the mother of the child. Her greatest blessing was that her child would save her from her sin. And this is the blessing that is given to everyone who believes in him.